So our special guest on today's program is Trevor Lowenson, founding partner and managing director of Elsian Group. Trevor, you've had a, an extraordinary career, Lloyd, Schroders, JP Morgan, UBS, Babcock and Brown, and of course, Elsian. Trevor, we'll get, we'll get into all of those shortly, but before we do, as I understand it, you were born in South Africa and moved to Sydney, wherein you attended King David School. Tell us a little bit, if you could, about your background. We emigrated to, to, with my family to Australia in 1979. I was 19. I, I finished my uni at New South Wales Uni here, a commerce degree, and then I uh, joined Arthur Anderson, um, where, amongst other things, I've, I, I've linked up with Phil Green even then. So we've been together for almost 40 years now in various shapes and forms, including the same cricket team. And then uh, did my chartered accounting degree and then went into investment banking in 1985. Um, where I joined Lloyd's Corporate Advisory Services, which at the time was the leading boutique M&A advisory group with the likes of David Block and, and uh, Tim Burrows and Peter Mason and um, that group of people who eventually became Centaurus and then moved on to Merrill Lynch. Since, since that time, I spent my life in M&A and equity capital markets and debt for the range of investment banks that you referred to earlier. And amongst other things, um, Babcock and Brown uh, um, was my client for 18 years before I joined them and that's how you know Phil and I became such good colleagues and friends throughout all of that period. So grew up in South Africa and as you said migrated to Australia at age 19. Tell us a little bit about growing up in South Africa and then how you found the transition into Australia. And unusual in the sense that, that um, we, we came to Australia sight unseen and I only jumped to that first because it's very similar to, in many ways, Australia is very similar to South Africa. So we grew up, you know, um, putting aside the apartheid issue, which I'll address in a second. We grew up loving the same sorts of things, you know, good lifestyle, loving cricket, loving rugby, um, uh, good education. Unfortunately, obviously, the apartheid regime was, was um, you know, was an inhibitor to a lot of people who felt, you know, morally opposed to that. And it didn't seem in those days that um, there would have actually ever be any change. So, I mean, when we left in 1979, it was three years after the Soweto riots. Um, and in fact, floods of people came in 1960 after the Sharpeville riots and the 19, post-1976 when the Soweto riots took place. But we were obviously very opposed to apartheid. And actually, I think to everyone's surprise, when, a, when apartheid actually crumbled in 1994, um, people were very surprised that it took that quickly and in, in a relative sense was, was somewhat bloodless. I mean, there'd been a lot of people who lost their lives in the cause along the way, but, but um, you know, the beauty of coming to Australia is you came with a lot of cultural similarities, um, easy to fit in. Uh, you know, my parents who brought us here had never been here. We just, we just knew about it. We knew we didn't want to go and live in another country that didn't have the same sorts of um, attributes in terms of um, morality, culture, lifestyle and so on um, that we were expecting. And yeah, it's proved to be a, an amazing, wonderful country. We're very lucky that we're here. <laughs> and Bachelor of Commerce at the University of New South Wales, what, what prompted the interest in business and commerce? Um, I've, I've always felt that, that the beauty of what we do um, is, is the variety. There's no sameness about it. Every deal's different, every industry is different, and, and it's dynamic. And so, you know, you're very lucky to be in this kind of industry because you're always looking at the world through different lenses and learning so much along the way and to be honest that's why we still do it now because we just love what we do. 
You joined Lloyds Bank in 1985 for a period of six years and you became an Associate Director of the business. Tell us about your, your experiences at Lloyds Bank. It, it taught me the essence of being an absolutely, you know, committed investment banker. The guys who used to run that business, driven originally by David Block, but very close also to Peter Mason and Arthur Charles and the other drivers of that business, you know, had this philosophy that you always go home with a clean desk. You've done all your work and if that meant you stayed there until midnight, that's what you do. But we had an incredible service ethos and a uh, work ethic um, and I, I learned a huge amount from those guys and we were doing M&A, we were doing every, we were on every second M&A deal at that time. And in fact, you know, in 1987 when the crash came, there were a lot of follow-up takeovers that took place post the, the 1987 crash. Um, it was a phenomenal time. We, 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 we had an absolute ball. Um, I learned a hell of a lot from those guys. You know, we, we covered every industry, every business um, across town and, and it was a phenomenal group of people to work with. And, and actually when I moved to Schroeder's, it was because Peter Mason and Arthur Charles moved across to, to, to Schroeder's. I went with them to join them at Schroeder's and we just carried on with that same philosophy at Schroeder's. Where that actually, Peter and Arthur had come from Schroeder's originally before they joined Lloyd's, they were at Schroeder's before then. Was there any cultural difference between the way that Schroeder's operated and the way that Lloyd's operated? Schroeder's was more of a globally an investment bank, whereas Lloyd's um, back in, in the UK was actually a commercial bank. So there was a, there was a, uh, a slightly more investment banking umbrella for the whole Schroeder's business and the Schroeder's did have a very successful investment bank in, in the UK. But in terms of what we were doing in Australia, they were both um, sort of quasi boutiques, if you want to call them that. We, we were running our own show at, at that point in time. Obviously there, there are um, times when you're going to get an international client coming to Australia, an Australian client going overseas where, you, where some international affiliation is useful. But within, within Australia, you know, it's a, it's a home market, it's a home game, it's, it's who you know in the market. I mean, I worked with uh, um, a bunch of Matthew Grounds and, and Chris Mackay were at Schroeder's um, in those early days. Um, you know, this is, you look at Baron Joey, it's a, you know, and the formation of an Aussie company in that respect. Um, a lot of the work that we did was, was, was Australian and, and it didn't really matter who, who your owner was. It was what your local relationships were like and what your local reputation was like. So Lloyd Schroeder's and then by 1997 you're appointed Head of Investment Banking and Joint CEO of JP Morgan Chase. Yeah. Talk me through that period if you could. So again, um, just, just by way of transition, myself and three other people, Peter Mason, uh, at the time Gordon Fell and Kevin Jacobson were, let's call it headhunted to, to Ord Manette at the time. So it wasn't JP Morgan at that stage, it was Ord's. Ords was a very successful broker, but they were looking to boost their investment banking capability. So we all had various roles within that 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 Ordmanet, um, framework. So Ords at the time was owned 50% by Flemings out of the uh, the Fleming Group, and 50% by the staff. And within a very short space of time, <laughs> Chase took Flemings in the UK. So we became Chase Ordmanet, and then Chase bought out the other half of Ords. So now we became Chase. Ordmanette still but 100% owned and then six months later Chase and JP Morgan merged and we became JP Morgan so every six months I kept changing my name. I'd, I was sitting in the same desk and doing the same job but, but uh, so by the time we got to that stage um, we were three companies. We were Chase, JP Morgan and Ordmanette all combined together in one company um, and, and then there was a rationalisation post that period. 
as you brought those three companies together, um, but it became JP Morgan, which is obviously a very, as, you, as everybody knows, a very powerful brand name. And how did you see the, the growth of that JP Morgan business up until you left and joined UBS, which I think was around about 2002, 2003? Mm. There were two parts to that. Um, one, it, it, was, it was hugely successful. There were a lot of people that unfortunately had to leave at that point in time because we'd brought three businesses together and there were a lot of overlaps and what have you. So that wasn't a particularly pleasant part of the job in, in rationalising that, but that was one of the jobs I did do. <laughs> but, um, you know, then, then after that, in around about 2002, three, I, you know, was the tech wreck globally, and and back home in the U.S., things were were not going that well for a lot of the big global banks. Um, so they then pulled back, as they often do, and uh, and the outposts of the are the the parts that suffer the most in terms of well, we need headcount reductions and people reductions. So it was a tough period, as. I was asked to shrink even further, much smaller than a lot of the competitors were at, at that stage. I found at that point in time I, I, I didn't really enjoy, you know, reporting to US and, and um, overseas counterparts who didn't really understand that much about how small Australia is and, and, and with great respect them didn't really care, you know, like it didn't matter to them uh, because it's a, it's a rounding error for them what we were doing down here always um, in, the, in, the, in the businesses of M&A and equity that, you know, um, yes, they get, occasionally get a big ticket, but outside of that, it's, it's, it just doesn't even rate on the Richter scale from their perspective back in, in the US. And there's the long history of American companies, especially coming in, out, in, out, in, out. So, you know, they made me shut down the whole New Zealand office. So it was, it was an uncomfortable period because we, there was not an alignment of what I wanted to do and what they wanted to do. Just based on conversations that you've had and, and your knowledge, has that changed those sort of cultural differences, say, between the way UBS works as a Swiss bank, the way that JP Morgan works as an American bank, the way that yeah. a Baron Joey works as an Australian bank and a Jardin, say, yeah. is a New Zealand now also a, an Australian? To an extent. I mean, I think the Europeans, um, and Schroeder's was a good example of that, the Europeans were better at understanding the need to have a, a local culture and a local framework that, that fitted in. Um, and not a one-size-fits-all approach. That that that's more the way the American businesses operate. But it was a relationship thing, you know. I mean, the guys at UBS had a very, very long, successful relationship with their UBS counterparts in in Europe and let them run their own show, and they were hugely successful for both parties. So I think that the the Europeans were better at that. But I think you know th those American banks that are left in Australia probably understood that by now and given some autonomy and some capacity for the local people to make decisions that are relevant to the local market. Um, but a few guys have, you know, kind of, I wouldn't say vanished off the face of the earth, but they've, they've shrunk and disappeared a little bit in, along the way. Um, and you've got just a few big guys left who've, you know, it's a small market, it's a tiny market, there's not enough for everybody in that respect. So fast forward to 2005 and you joined the famed Babcock and Brown business in the position of Global Head of Capital Markets and Advisory after assisting with the IPO of the business while still at UBS. Walk me through the decision to leave UBS and join Babcock and Brown. In simple terms, by the time a year had um, elapsed since the Babcock and Brown IPO, Babcock and Brown probably listed another, I don't know, 10 funds around the world and UBS was on pretty much all of those tickets. Um, Phil said to me, well, this is crazy, right? I'm paying all the UBS all these ridiculous fees. We still got to use them, of course, but, but you come and do it in-house, right? 
And, you know, apart from the fact that he'd been a, a very good client for almost 20 years um, in various shapes and forms, we were good friends and he needed an in-house capability. So it was a very natural evolution for me. And it was with some reluctance. In fact, for a year, I kept an office at both UBS and, and Babcock and & Brown. The way that things were evolving, I was spending 99% of my time on Babcock & Brown stuff. And UBS was involved in all of them. Um, and it was a great partnership in that respect, but it was a very natural transition for me to go and do it in-house. There's been a lot said and written about Babcock and Brown, and I, and I don't want to dwell on it because the story's... You're welcome to. <laughs> the story's been, uh, been done so many times. I do want to ask you, though, what made the business so successful over those 10 or 15 years? Obviously, I presume it was the, the people and the talent within the business, yeah. but, but what else? What was the culture like? They're probably... Um, three components that, that made it successful and it starts and finishes with a very entre entrepreneurial flair which was allowed to flourish um, and alignment of capital. So, so in the partnership days pre-listing, every deal that we did, and that's a, very much a feature of our current model as well, every deal we did, our own money was in it. It was very important to us that, that we only did deals that we would put our own money into. Um, and the other thing that, that was made Babcock and Brown, a very successful global business, was that you know we had people in each market. So we had people living in Milan, we had people living in San Francisco. The business started in San Francisco. We had people living in Japan, we had people living in, in, in Asia, in places like Hong Kong and um, Japan um, and, and other parts of the, the world. So we weren't playing an away game. We had locals on the ground and that's really important to actually be in the proper flow and know what you're doing because you know I've always said it's it's very hard to play an away game, um, and uh, you're going to get taken advantage of if you're not a home game, if you're not in, if you're not from the from the region. So you know we had different businesses in different countries. You know, in in some places we we were better in property, in some bases we were better in infrastructure. Our global wind business really emanated out of Europe and in the U.S. You know, our property business really Phil was the driver of that in Australia. The infrastructure business came out of Australia, uh, also through Phil, and and the aircraft leasing business came out of San Francisco. So. That, that culture was about local people with specialist knowledge uh, and an entrepreneurial flair with access to, to capital to, to allow that to happen. Towards the back end of the downfall of Babcock and Brown in, in about 2008, 2009, you've spent, as I understand, about 18 months on the asset sales program of the business. Why was that so important to you to, to stay around and see that period through? Well, for a number of reasons. Um, First and foremost, the syndicate of banks whose money we were trying to protect at that point in time had all been very good close contacts and relationships of mine during my investment banking days. You know, there was a responsibility to the people in each of the businesses and there was a, a moral responsibility to, to just keep going and see it through to a point where all these businesses were stabilised and the people were looked after. And, and right at that point in time, I didn't even give it any second thought as to what else I would do. I just kept going on that process because I... I felt responsible for, for making sure that it got to as best outcomes I could get it to get to. Before we move on, key lessons or learnings from, from your time at Babcock Brown, what were they? The one thing for us, and it doesn't mean it applies to everybody, being listed in a funds management environment is a very tough place to be because the market always expects growth and you're going into an environment like we're going into now, you go, well, you know, this might not be an, an environment to pursue growth. Um, we want to pull back a little bit. The market doesn't like that. And when your share price goes down or your funds under management goes down, the market loses confidence and it has, a, it has such a public effect on your business. So I don't like 
funds management in the listed environment for myself. That doesn't mean it doesn't work for lots of other people. Uh, it obviously leverages up very nicely in the up cycles and it doesn't so much in the down cycles. The other point is that we, you know, we, we, we got very big and we, got, we had a lot of complex structuring. And in hindsight, that was one of the undoings of the business is that, that although we had some fantastic assets, we had a lot of fantastic assets. And if you look at the history of what's happened to those assets and businesses post 2008, they've all gone on to be hugely successful in all their little buckets, but they were interlinked and, and connected. And, and so when you try to unwind that, um, it was very, very difficult. So a key learning from that process is that our business today is very compartmentalized into smaller buckets so that if there was a problem, and touch wood there hasn't been any, but if there was, was a problem, we could address that problem in its bucket because it's small enough and it's not linked to other things. And that's a huge learning. And finally, liquidity. Liquidity, liquidity, liquidity. You know, what killed not only us, but a whole lot of other people at that point in time was, was lack of access to cash to unlock those problems. And that was compounded by the complex structuring that I referred to earlier. But the underlying um, cure is still going to have to be some cash. Um, and, you know, be ready for that rainy day. And all of those are things that we adhere to very rigorously in our business today. So if we cast our mind back to 2010, the launch of Elsian Group, yourself, Phil Green and Morris, what, what was going through your mind at that stage? Where did you see the opportunity to launch your own firm? I think uh, the first thing that was going through our mind was brand repair. <laughs> and I think what we learned, you know, in, 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 in that period of time is that at the beginning there was a fair amount of anger, if you want to call it that, but then I think people realised that people lost money in lots of things. Um, along the way, not just Babcock and Brown. And of course, a lot of those people have made a huge amount of money from Babcock and Brown stuff over the years. So what we wanted to do was to focus on, on doing bespoke, clever deals where we could raise money quickly. And that's one of our calling cards at the moment. So, so, so when we do a lot of our transactions now, many times the underlying fundamentals might be um, something that someone else could assess. Um, but whether they could actually execute and raise the capital in the same speed that we can, um, is very unlikely because I think we've got a very, very special system and process and capability in that respect. And that's because of our very loyal following of high net worth investors and the fact that we've got a lot of experienced people here who know how to do a deal very quickly and assess a deal very quickly. So we, we were focused on, on, you know, opportunistic investing within a thematic overlay. Uh, and by that I mean we were happy to do private equity deals, we're happy to do credit deals, we're happy to do property deals. but there had to be an underlying thematic around it. So the private equity, maybe that was more opportunistic um, because we would look at um, you know, particular corporate situations where there was a dislocation that we could take advantage of. Whereas in the property side, we go, well, we know we are in the residential cycle. We know we are we're in the shopping center cycle. We know we are in the office cycle. Um, we know which part of the capital stack we want to be in. And we can change that at a whim. I'm not, I'm, you know, if I walk out of here today and decide that, you know, I don't like um, uh, industrial property to today I want to get out of it or I, want, or I do like it, I want to get into it, I can do that. I'm not looking for some you know, external asset consultant to tell me that um, and I can move ahead of time. And then if we see a specific opportunity and someone says I need $50 million in three weeks time, there's very few people who can do that. Well, we can say, well, let's look at the fundamentals, speak to the counterparty and if we like what they're saying, yeah, we'll do that. And they go, well, you know, how are you going to get it done so quickly? Well, we can, right? And, and, you know, we can raise money from our investors in two weeks to do that. We've got to do some work beforehand, but we can raise money from our investors in two weeks to do that sort of thing. And we've got some funds which, 
you're probably familiar with um, uh, in terms of access to some of that capital as well. So we like the residential space because it's very deep and it's very liquid. Um, and it's because we've got huge um, embedded knowledge around all the markets across the country in, in the residential space. Back to my point earlier about being a home game, you know, we, we know which, we know every block of land in, in each city and where we will play and where we won't play and, you know, we're very happy to play in those, in those areas where we understand completely. The, the original deal, which probably Phil talked about in, in, when, when you spoke to him, was, was, uh, you know, was totally opportunistic where we bought a, a pool of mortgage-backed securities from a U.S. company and they, they needed to get out by the 30th of June and they came to us in the middle of May, so six weeks we had to do the due diligence, raise the money and close the deal. But there was a connection that we had with someone who knew about the deal, brought it to us, we raised the money, we did the deal. It was a phenomenal deal. We, 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 we bought $25 million of assets, which we subsequently sold for 125 um, and made a lot of money for ourselves and our investors in that respect. And it was all because we could move in six weeks. What makes the dynamic between yourself, Phil, and, and Morris work so well? Is it your different skill sets that are complementary or is it something else, do you think? Well, I think it's a, fundamentally it's a very deep friendship and mutual trust, which has been, you know, we've all been friends for the full 40 years. I met Morris when I first arrived in Australia as well. And so I've known them both for, ever since I've been here, which is now you know, 43 years. And absolutely we have different skill sets, um, but we also have a very strong willingness to, to debate vigorously with each other um, what we think the right um, answer is to any particular problem. Um, and then once we've had a good robust discussion around that, um, uh, then we unite behind uh, the right answer. And I think you can only do that in an environment where you've got a hugely mutual trusting partnership. Clearly investors have responded well. The business has gone from one billion in funds under management, I think in those first two or three, years to now just over four billion between three and a half to, to four billion four now, yeah. four now. Uh, what what how have you been able to achieve that growth over it's really only been 12 years the biggest part of that um, growth has been in the property lending area um, and that's predominantly been driven by a number of external factors which have helped us so you know the banks have had the royal commission five or six years ago where they had to pull back on some of their lending and that opened the door for us and a whole lot of non-bank intermediaries to come into the market. Then all the borrowers, not only in property but outside of property, need some component of their, of their capital that is more flexible, that is shorter term perhaps, that is more linked to a particular situation. So a lot of these borrowers um, that are taking money from us and the other non-bank intermediaries are looking for another capital source that's, that, that's going to be help them through some of those tougher times or unusual times. Uh, that's not to say that we, we partner with the banks and, and we work a lot and we, we also borrow from the banks when we're buying assets. Um, so we've got good relationships with the banks, but there's a part of the, of the, the world that they can't fill. Um, and that's what's helped us to grow our business. But in, particularly in the, in the senior property debt space, you know, at times in the cycle when a property developer um, needs to exercise an option on a new property, but he hasn't quite finished this one, and he hasn't got his pre-sales quite there, but he can give me his security over this, and he needs to move quickly, we're a better option, because we can move quickly. Uh, so a lot of our property development partners, we might be, you know, we're, we're on to our 10th, 11th, in some cases, 25th or 30th deal with them, uh, alongside their banking relationships. What are the investment fundamentals that you look 
towards or that you analyse and consider prior to investing in a venture, whether it's on the private equity side or whether it's in the property debt yeah. side? Look, I think, I think that um, what I'd say about our, our philosophy is that our first and most important um, foundation is that if you invest with us, you should feel that your capital is safe. It's not a capital guarantee. We feel that we'll never do a deal um, where there's any real chance that you lose your capital, right? And then it's about, and, and it's, it's a very, you know, it's not, it's not a unique philosophy. It's just something that we're very rigorous about. Is, is that it's proper risk-adjusted returns. We, we consider ourselves to be very good at assessing risk and then pricing that risk. So that doesn't mean we won't take risk. It means we structure and mitigate and price that risk. And that's a core component of, of, um, of our competitive advantage. So, you know, I don't mind. We, we were probably ahead of the pack in moving out of residential equity into, into MES and then down into senior debt four or five years ago when the equity side was getting a bit too hot. And we go, well, do I want to earn 20% in, in, in equity when I can earn 10% in debt for, you know, a tenth of the risk? And you look at that relativity and go, no, not at that point in time. Um, so, so we think we're very good at that. Maybe you sound immodest, but, but you know, that's, that, that's, our, that's our primary um, focus is making sure that everything we do has a proper risk-adjusted return. But, you know, we also know that... you. You, if you're trying to do what everyone else is doing, um, then you can't earn excess returns for your investors. So you can't just, I'm not trying to be another bank. I'm not trying to be a vanilla lender. I'm trying to be a bit extra for, for the person who needs our capital. On the, on the flip side, what are the red flags that immediately stand out where you'll just close the book and, and won't invest? I think it's people. You know, we, at the end of the day, you're backing people. If you not comfortable that the person on the other side of the table is going to do what they say they're going to, they say they will do um, then we, we don't need to you know as I said no growth for growth's sake for us um, so it's people but you know also heroic assumptions there's probably the same as the people issue in many ways but if if people are ta expecting us to fund capital on on unrealistic assumptions then we know that that's not the right right thing for us what have been the key themes, if you reflect on the past decade or so, what have been the key themes that you've witnessed across the commercial property sector? I suppose we've had this um, extraordinary period of low interest rates which, which have um, propelled all asset prices very significantly. When you think of each subset of the commercial property sector, and I'm assuming you exclude residential from that, you know, the shopping centre space, we were in that. We've still got two shopping centres, or three actually. We watched the cap rates go up and we bought them, then they came down, we sold most of them. They bifurcated, so shop, you know, now you've got majors, which still seem to be reasonably strong. Um, and then you've got regional, which will, in the right areas will be very strong. And then you've got those middle ones where, with the emergence of online and so on, they, they're going to struggle a bit. You know, shopping centres got an interesting future in terms of how they play out as, as more of that stuff goes online, although as a subset of, the, of um, the emergence coming out of COVID at the moment, um, you can see that the online is going down again and people are going back into shopping centres. So, you know, people sort of called the end of, of, of shopping as COVID supposedly accelerated people fully to online, but people like the experience, they like to go shopping and so on. So I think the bifurcation of the shopping centre um, market is going to continue. So you, that's, you know, it's a very 
traditional property maxim of you know location, location, location. Uh, but there will be some biggish ones caught in the middle that will you know be half empty in five years' time. And offices even more that category, you know, with with work from home and all that's, you know, that was already emerging as a as a little bit of a theme. Office has been very strong in Australia because there's not a, hu a lot of huge new construction that's come on and vacancy rates across most of our markets um, have been pretty solid. Oh, well, occupancy rates have been pretty solid. But how that plays out is people seeking out, balance their workforce, you know, having two or three days in the office and two or three days at home. Um, I think you're going to see a, a, a very significant uh, trend towards better quality offices and then I don't know what's going to happen to all the C-grade um, and minus offices. You mentioned risk earlier. I'm always interested in, in how you practically analyse risk. What are, the, are there two or three key components of risk in terms of inputs that you look at really closely? Yes. Well, I, th I think the, the first part of risk is if we have to own that, can we deal with it? Because that, that's where it starts and finishes, right? Um, so that, that's, the, that's the number one issue for us. The second part is, um, is how much capital it would need in a, in a, call it a disaster scenario, to actually see it through. Can we get access to that? Um, and then the third is just pricing it properly, you know? Uh, and, and, and pricing it properly means going, well, you know, what is the real risk there? And a simple example would be if you're gonna do a property development with or without pre-sales, a property developer might tell you that, don't worry, I'm going to sell them all. I go, well, then you can choose, you know, you can either come pre-sell and we'll give you a lower rate or you don't pre-sell and we'll give you, you take a high rate because we, we're sharing that risk. And, and I don't care whether you think it's not a risk. I know it is a risk. It may not pan out to be one, but I'm pricing it because I know it's there, right? And a lot of people, and I'm, that's just a simple example. I mean, in every deal that we look at, there's a different kind of risk. Uh, and I think we're very good at identifying those specifics and just pricing them. As I understand it, LCN now has two funds in particular, one being the Australian Property Fund, which 70% core, 20% value add, 10% development or, or thereabouts. Take us through both of those funds, if you could. I mean, the Property Fund is, is, is really just a diversified property fund, which is run by Grant Acheson. It's a conservative fund. It's, it's designed to perform better in worse markets and worse in better markets so that it's, it's, more, it's less volatile. It doesn't have any heroic aspirations in that respect. And it's been a very consistent performer. Uh, he's done a great job, uh, Grant. And then the debt fund um, is really, in, in terms of our core of being a, a very, very successful partner to property developers, it's where we're doing our residential debt lending um, predominantly. And the reason why we're getting outsized returns for that fund is that we don't have 10-year loans in that that sit there forever. They churn over pretty quickly because we're helping people finish developments, do developments, um, exercise options and so on. And, and so we're continually putting new loans in and, and other loans maturing. Um, uh, but it also means that we're resetting risk the whole time uh, for current risk. And also because we're doing some of those sort of more um, bespoke loans for property developers, getting better returns for our investors. The other aspect that I wanted to ask you about is the turnaround of retail businesses, which has been more so on the private equity side mm -hmm. of the business. Take us through some of those turnarounds. I know you've had involvement in, in some of them being Harris Scarf and Nonny B 
and others and then the business has also had some some wins with mosaic brands with think childcare yep. with sms healthcare what what do you like about private equity and then how have you been able to turn around some of those in particular those retail businesses right well i think that um in private equity um again while we while we would have um a thematic overlay our success in private equity is looking for for dislocated situations i mentioned that a little bit earlier that you know we we, we look for a situation where you're in the wrong hands or there's an obvious thesis around why it's not in the right place and we look to fix that. Um, so, so actually the original proposition on Mosaic, which was previously known EB at the time, was it was a publicly listed company, but a family owned 40% of it and they were selling and was losing money at the time. Um, and we were approached by a CEO, which is Scott, to say, I know how to turn this thing around. So we, we participated in that process and it was a turnaround story and he did a fantastic job. Um, and then we, we you know, bundled up a few other businesses to grow it and, and get some synergies out of it. Unfortunately, in that particular one, the bushfires and then COVID have not helped um, that. And, and so that's been a very tough gig for, for Scott over the last three years. But we bought another business called Cheapest Chips. We bought that from a vendor who'd owned the business his whole life. Um, uh, it was going okay, but um, we put in a new CEO, um, Nick Abood, who's done a fantastic job in turning that around um, or growing it um, in a very successful niche. Uh, so that's been a fantastic success. They're not always turnarounds. Um, on Think, ultimately, that was a situation where we had a huge amount of respect for the for the promoter there, Matt. Um, and um, he was a bit like I was saying earlier. He was in a listed company, which market didn't understand that well. He had a lot of development side of it, so he was looking to find a way to privatize it and, and, uh, uh, and run it you know, the way it should be run rather than for the listed markets. Went through a complex set of evolutions where, where a, a global group called Busy bid for it. We had bought a stake. Um, we ended up selling them the operating business and keeping the development business in partnership with Matt. Again, very good example of our ability to be flexible and to to change tack once circumstances change, but to ride with Matt all the way through to a successful outcome for him and for all the investors and think. So I thought we'd close with a few more general questions, in particular, residential property market in Australia. What's your outlook on that? I think, first of all, you know, th there's a tendency towards um, hysteria in terms of property price corrections. There's not a lot of focus on perspective around what that actually means. So, you know, if, if something's fallen even 20% in the last 12 months, but it went up 30% in the 12 months before that. That means it's up 10, according to my arithmetic. So that's not to say property prices haven't fallen and aren't falling at the moment. They clearly are, and they should in the context of some of the um, rises that have happened. So I would say that our, our market, and you know, many people know this fact, I'm not saying something that hasn't been said many times before, have been called, have been calling the for the collapse of the Australian property market for 30 years and it hasn't happened, or 40 years it hasn't happened. And I don't think it will happen again. And the reason is that there's a supply-demand equation which, which remains very resilient. Um, we've had a period of, of um, under-immigration, if you want to call it that. Australia is a hugely desirable destination for people to come and live. And it will continue and it will underpin growth in the property market. and with all the aspects of property development slowing down in terms of less developers, less access to finance, less harder to get tradies, supply, construction prices going up, all of that is slowing down construction. 
So we're going to get to a situation where there's a supply-demand imbalance and that will underpin prices at a level. Now that's not to say for a moment that interest rates aren't going to hurt for a little while, uh, but they will revert in due course and, and, and so I see a flaw at a reasonable price. There will be some people at the margin at the end of that period who, who, um, who, have, uh, who are going to get hurt, unfortunately. That is always not the whole market, that's just that last little sliver. And also, um, you know, whilst ever we've got full employment, hopefully that people can afford to pay their mortgages. There's a huge cultural attitude in Australia of not defaulting on your mortgage. And to the best of my knowledge, in talking to people around the banks, and so they're not seeing huge increases in arrears and, def and defaults yet. And there's no one in the system who wants the property price, the property market, the residential property market to collapse. The banks don't want it, the government doesn't want it, the employer, the, all the property developers don't want it. So there's a lot of commonality around why they should support that market and I think they will continue to underpin at least the base level. That's not to say it's not going to go down and it's not to say it shouldn't go down in an environment where it's probably been, you know, excessively bid up, but it's not, it's, it shouldn't collapse. Globally speaking, are you nervous at all around some of the talk around recession in places like Europe and places like the US? You know, I had always believed that some level of high inflation was probably a better, a lesser evil than, than pushing us into recession. But it seems that the central bankers don't agree with me on that. Um, and, and I can't see us avoiding a recession. It's an unusual recession if you've got full employment and I guess over time, if that recession really bites, it will start to cause some unemployment. Um, so I think that that will be an issue. But I think Australia is very well positioned in, a, in an absolute and relative sense, um, uh, both in terms of our political systems, our social infrastructure, and, and our smallness actually allows us to be much more nimble and flexible in supporting the economy, over and above the fact that we've obviously got these valuable resources which... Uh, keep the economy ticking along at least for at least for the next 10 or 20 years before people work out if if they can do without coal if they can do without iron or or if they can do without all the other good things that we export as I mentioned in the opening you've had a 30 plus year career 30 plus years of experience I want to ask you what are the key lessons or advice that you can share based on on your career in investment banking and in property and so many other areas well, lessons for myself or lessons for other people? For myself, it, you know, it, it's, it's more about uh, um, not, if it doesn't feel right, don't do it, right? But sometimes you get, you know, when you're a deal guy, you kind of tend to go, oh, it sounds good, interesting, whatever. So, you know, don't do it. We don't have to. There's always another deal. In terms of uh, as, at a personal level, you know, only deal with people you like. It's as simple as that, right? It's much easier to deal with people you like and trust. Finally, what do you see as the, the next evolution of, of Elsian Group? What does it look like 5, 10, 15 years from now, do you think? I think that, you know, we've got um, capacity for some really good growth in our, in our funds under management to a level that's probably, you know, maybe 20% on top of. So double, up to double um, where we are now. But our, at, our desire to make sure that we have this philosophy of having fun and enjoying ourselves um, and not becoming overly bureaucratic and institutional in our ability to respond to opportunities. We want, we have got institutional investors, we have got wholesale investors, we, we, we're embracing them and bringing them onto our platforms. But in order to deliver superior returns, we, we can only get so big. Um, and I think that that's our challenge and opportunity for the next 
you know, five to ten years is to get to that level that where we maintain that level of profitability. But as I said at the outset, I don't want to become a, a high volume, low margin business. I want to be a low volume, high margin business for my investors first and foremost as a result for ourselves. Trevor Lowenson, pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much, Rob.